I'd like to welcome my guest today, Keith Gongitano, who is the founder and CEO of the manufacturing of a product called Airwall. And I'm going to bring uh, Keith in here in a second, but you'll see in the background one of the Airwalls, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. So, Keith, how about a quick hello? Hey there. How you doing, Lance? I'm glad to be here. And we're glad to have you. So I want to get right into this. And I got a few questions right off the bat, because when I see your email come to me, it says Zeppelin guys. And, and I'm kind of curious as to we've always called you or associated you with the Airwall product. But the name of the company is Zeppelin. Is that correct? Yeah, it's it's Zeppelin. Um, you know, we it, it's when we first founded the company, we you know, you, you got to find a name. And uh, since it's inflatable. Um, Zeppelin just kind of seemed like a cool name and we went with it and we designed a logo for it. And, but then the product needed a name mainly because if it's going to have a line item on Xactimate and other things, it needs a name. And so it became Airwall. And then over time it became Airwalls by Zeppelin, um, which is containment from A to Z. So it's just kind of one of these things, but if you look us up, you'll find us both on Airwalls and Zeppelin. <laughs> okay. Well, so where did this concept come from? Because in, in the remediation and healthcare and restoration type of industries, this is something completely new. It is new. Um, it evolved is what it did. Um, it started with me helping a friend with his restoration company back in the summer of 2017. And I was in a crawl space. Um, it was a miserable experience. Uh, I spent three hours trying to build a chamber so that we could get the subfloor dry and among other things, I got bit by a spider and and bruised and battered and managed to only build marginal containment, um, a chamber. It was terrible. And so I invented the crawl space tool. Uh, it was just kind of one of those fully formed ideas in my head. I just knew how it had to work. Convinced a friend who's now a part of the company and pretty much has been since the beginning, because without him, a lot of this stuff wouldn't exist uh, just because he's the one that knew how to build it. Uh, his name is Cole. And I, um, I convinced him to build our first prototype. Uh, for crawl spaces. And one thing led to another, you know, we, we started thinking, I started, what about a doorway? I wonder if we could use this very tool in the doorway. And so I repurposed it and it was very ugly. And we thought, well, the concept works. It's just not going to work, you know, in, in the sense that it's really gross and ugly looking. So we designed something for that. And then we moved on to windows. And, and then we realized at some point that because we met a, a, a a fine gentleman by the name of Mark Cornelius. He's a, um, among other things, he's a he's a, a member of the board on the IICRC. He's a trainer for years. He's been in the industry for almost 40 years. And he loved our product and just asked me a very simple question that he was looking at the doorway unit, our X, and he said, uh, so how do you get out? And I looked at him with a very kind of lost look and he goes, how do you get out? Where's your doffing chamber? You know, when you're doing a mold job, you gotta have a doffing chamber. And it just never occurred to me. And so that's, you know, kind of what started my wheels spinning. And uh, we went round and round and round. And the other question was always about power failure as well, as well. What do you do about a power failure? Because the crawl space unit and the and the Airwall X, which is built for doorways and, and the window units as well, they're all constant air kind of appliances. They They require air from your air movers or your or your um, HEPA, HEPA filters and things like that. And if the power goes out, well, then they deflate and they stop functioning. And so we we went around for a long time before we settled on what we ended up with. And, and you'll actually see that behind me. You can actually see the, 
that's the full system. That's that's two air wall nexus on either side of me and behind me. The front oh, of the, let, uh, let me let me interrupt you real quick yeah. because we'll, we'll talk about all the different types of configurations and products and stuff that you've come up with because yeah. I, I know your mind just works continuously it on does. this stuff. But I mean, the simple question is, how do these work? I mean, air, <laughs> air. <laughs> air, okay. Yeah, they inflate. Um, you know, and you're right. I, I tend to get, you know, I love my stuff and I think about it all the time. So I go fast. Um, the, the two that I talked about first, they, they require constant air. Um, you, you connect them to your air movers, um, your negative air machine, and you, you do what we call pre-cycle the air. You capture the air coming out of the machine directly, and then you take that air and do what you want with it, whether it's to exhaust it from the structure and create negative pressure or to create a manifold um, where you're actually directing the air to a subfloor or maybe the perimeter of the building. Um, but these then, are different. This is different. That's behind you now, right? Yeah. So this is this is the latest. This is this is very different. In fact, um, what you'll notice again to either side of me is is the nexus, and the nexus consists of five separate inflatable air bladders. And if you look at the bottom, you'll see those little round. Those are valves, and so you inflate each of these chambers separately. The idea being that if there is a power failure, first of all, these are inflated and they don't require any more air. But if there was any kind of damage done to one of those bladders, although we did a lot to design them so that they're very durable, but if something did happen, that even the loss of an entire or even two chambers would still um, uh, maintain your containment. Um, so that's that's the design we came up with. And, and yeah, they're very different, but they both work on air and they both work on pressure. The whole reason that they function as negative air containment and, and as a chamber is because they're pushing against the surfaces of the building, up and down and then sideways, so that they uh, they seal up. Okay, so now I did cut you short before. I just want to get back to, you were starting to talk about the different types of products. Yeah. I just wanted our, our viewers to understand at least how this th how these things work. Yeah. What else have you designed? I mean, this is for, it looks like you got a chamber behind you and a whole wall, but yeah. I know there's problems with you know different heights, different types of ceilings and floors. How does that all work, or do you have special products for that? So we wanted simplicity was the key. Uh, we didn't want a bazillion parts and uh, things that could get lost, broken, misplaced, or, or just adding complexity. Um, what you see behind me, essentially, is four things. It's a nexus on one side, a nexus on the other, the dust curtain that joins them, and the doffing chamber that zips to the dust curtain in a nutshell. Um, so it's really, really simple. If this room that I'm that we're looking at were eight feet tall or nine feet tall, this is an eight foot configuration, there were nine or 10 feet, you would simply add a 12 inch extension to the very top of that wall. And because the air bladders inside are actually 10 feet long, then you're not doing anything else. Those air bladders simply roll out the next 12 inches and then stop. They stop because there's a piece on the top that makes them stop. Um, and then if you had to go to 10, you'd do the same thing. Add another 12 inches and then those bladders go up the next. So um, so it's very simple. Uh, that conversion can be done in just a couple of minutes. Very simple. Interesting. So how about like width or if you're dealing with different heights, you know, like it's a slanted ceiling or something like that? Sure. So for width, not a problem. Um, these these walls that you see to my sides are are five feet nominally. 
um, and uh, again, eight, nine, or 10 feet. They can be adjusted. Um, well, let's talk about width first. So you can put as many together as you want. You can zip these things together. They join to each other. It's all modular. Everything goes together and connects. So you can put four or five of these together or two. If you happen to be in a space that, again, these would be 10 feet joined. If you were in an eight foot space, you could do a couple different things. You could just simply change the shape of the, of the wall into a, a curve. Um, you know, think, think Hoover Dam, you know, you could do something like that. Um, you could also run them straight across the room. And then when you get to the wall, you simply under inflate whichever bladder would be at the bend, right? And then bend the wall, that's it. And now what's touching the building may be one or two bladders as opposed to just the edge, but that's the way you shorten it. Um, so you've got a bunch of different options on how you can do that. Um, as far as an uneven ceiling, I'm gonna I'm gonna point here. Uh, let's see, how do I do that? <laughs> these right here, these little black dots, those those allow you to actually put straps that also attach to the very top of the wall, and you can actually change the pitch of the wall if you need to. You can actually slope it to a certain extent, and you can also adjust it. Um, not just to eight, nine or 10 feet, but if you were, let's say in a, um, a drop ceiling, a T-bar, they're, they're not standard, right? They land sometimes at eight feet, three inches or uh, just under nine feet, whatever ceiling height. They're never really standard because they're not set by two by fours. They're set by a contractor who puts wire, hangs them and that's where they land. So you can actually adjust these things really, really kind of a micro adjustment anywhere between seven at the bottom all the way up to just over 10 feet. So, yeah. If it just about anywhere, it sounds like. It will. The only thing I don't think we're ever going to really do, um, and that kind of brings up another uh, one of our thought processes here, we're probably never going to do like the vaulted ceiling scenario. Um, so in a vaulted ceiling, you're probably going to have to either commit to plastic fully, which, you know, it is our goal here to try to get as much plastic out of this industry and construction as we can. Um, or you're going to do a hybrid. And to be clear, we really did always design this product to be, in when it's necessary, hybridized, um, merged with the, the plastic that everybody's using now, because there are going to be certain environments where a vaulted ceiling or, or some weird cutout is going to pre prevent these walls from, you know, creating the, the appropriate seal. So you may use 90% air wall, and then that last little bit you may connect, you know, to plastic. And because these, these walls um, work well with tape, A, they don't come off, which is great because you can't say that about tape and walls, right? When, when walls have, you know, water literally dripping down them or, or years of cooking grease or whatever, they don't stick, right? That's why a lot of failure happens with, with traditional containment. Uh, but these walls are designed to work with tape and not leave residue. So um, you can tape plastic to it for as long as the job takes and then peel it off and you won't have to worry about it leaving stuff behind. And, and certainly whenever possible, you want our walls to be, or the air walls to be touching the surfaces of the building because that's gonna create the superior seal without the problems of, of you know, damage like peeling paint or, or whatever else that comes with using tape. Well, I, I know that with um, some of the normie training that we do, we've actually incorporated some of the air wall technology into some of the types of hands-on training that we do, especially like when we go to the experienced trade shows, 
where people are able to touch and work through all the new different technologies and products. And they fit into structures that we basically build on site. So we're able to adjust them, you know, in real time to fit into these structures. And uh, it works out very well for us because we're able to put those up with plastic, show the differences and, you know, how you can make changes and everything else. So it, it does work and it's adjustable, like you were talking about, to whatever structure we build at the time. Right, right. And I and it it brings me joy to hear that, Lance, <laughs> because, you know, I had this 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 uh, awakening. It was kind of late in coming. I've been doing this for five years, but I had this awakening about five days ago where I realized when I made my first shipment to Australia that that um, these things exist without me, you know, in different time zones and on different continents and and people are are interacting with them. And and what I spent years thinking about and designing has to work and I can't be there to help them. <laughs> I can't, I can't. So you, know. so you send your children off to school for the first time, basically. I, that's what it sounds like, right? Absolutely. Yeah. That's what it felt like. <laughs> Put them on the bus to Australia. Exactly. So, so let's go a little bit further into this as far as like uh, vertical markets and stuff. I mean, I could see it in the remediation industry, restoration, asbestos. How about like medical? or all of the above. Yeah, absolutely. That's actually one of the most exciting things about what's behind me here is that um, this, when this came, all of a sudden, exactly what you're talking about just changed totally. So medical, um, if you have someone who has, uh, who's a burn victim and, or, or is, a, is uh, receiving cancer treatments or is in some other way significantly immunocompromised, um, positive pressure environments are how you deal with that. And a hospital environment can, can create that, but that's very expensive. Um, this can do that uh, very, very easily, very simply, and doesn't require any permanent modifications to a building. On the flip side, we're all very familiar with negative air pressure because of the pandemic that we're all emerging from now um, and the need for negative airspace, which is the exact opposite of what I just described. Instead of pumping clean, fresh air into an environment with people who have no immune system, you're instead drawing air in um, so that the bad boogies can't get out. So that's medical. But even more so, there's really, really strict enforcement when you're in a hospital environment because of, you know, generally who's in a hospital. People are sick when they're in a hospital. So if any kind of building modifications have to take place in a hospital, they have to do things to prevent dust and everything else from getting to people who might be um, unwell. And so it's not even just the, um, the direct medical application, but medical facilities. And, and because maintenance has to happen and modifications must occur, this can actually be a very, you know, uh, a significant improvement to what they're doing now, which is putting up plastic. It takes sometimes hours or even a day to set up the containment to move a machine from one room to another, simply because of the restrictions on a hospital and what can and can't be done without containment. Um, so that's a big deal. And then, you know, just, I've been told mining. Um, in fact, the folks in Australia, because mining is a big part of Australia's uh, economy, mining is one. Um, high tech, both chip manufacturing and also in like server farms, things like that, um, where very sensitive equipment is very, you know, can't be exposed to dust. So that's another big, big opportunity all the construction trades could benefit from it. 
basically, and then there's also, of course, you know, um, the the potential need um, for first responders and and militaries, you know, around the world. What if there's a you know some kind of an outbreak, some kind of a maybe a terrorist attack, a biological terrorist attack, and and you know, first responders and military have to show up and contain it best they can. This stuff. I mean, this, this sec, this, what you have see behind me fits into basically three duffel bags, you know? So that's the kind of thing that a, a military could really benefit from. So, yeah. Well, while you were talking, I, I jotted down three quick questions and you were just starting to touch on one. So let, let me ask it to you, but instead yeah. of three questions, I'll just do it as one question now. What I wrote down here was portable, durable, and cleanable. Yeah. Especially you started talking about mining and then, uh, you know, bacteria outbreaks and viruses and stuff like that. So as far as it being portable, I mean, they're pretty big. I mean, easy to move, you know, and, um, you know, cleanable. And how durable are they? All three. You got three questions there. Okay. So let's start with portable. We already started on that. (laughs) Um, Basically, it's a a gym bag. Um, One of these walls fits in a gym bag. Um, Hmm. Of course, each one comes with said gym bag. Um, and it's very, very easy to, to, to lift. I mean, the, the Nexus fully loaded Nexus is 25 pounds. That's it. Right. So it's well below the lifting weight of, uh, of any of the trades. I mean, most equipment is, is that or a lot more. So very, very portable, um, small, compact, lightweight, easy to use. It looks huge right now, but it fits into an itty bitty space. Right. Um, so that's really good. As far as cleanable goes, uh, we were very intentional on that. Um, and in fact, um, along the way, we had it pointed out. Uh, in fact, a, a well-known person in the restoration industry, Rachel Adams, had pointed out in uh, 21 that she thought it needed to be a little more cleanable. And so I said, okay, let's do that. Um, so we just simply reversed the fabric that we're using uh, so that the what you see on the outside is actually a, a urethane. So it's much, much smoother and much easier to clean. The stuff before was also very cleaner, but it had texture. And so there was a concern that maybe some of the fibers and things like that might, might stick. But um, so we designed it to be smooth, easy to clean. Uh, they're all machine washable. They're all designed to be totally machine washable. If you really, let's say are in a cat three environment and you really wanna make sure uh, that it's clean, you can do that. All the biocides, no problem, antimicrobials, no, no issues there whatsoever. You can spray away and it'll be just fine. Um, so yeah, so cleanable and then durable. And I, I say durable for the end because durable, what, I mean, all this stuff is important, super important, but durable because we're claiming to be better than plastic. We better, we better deliver, right? Because this stuff isn't cheap, right? You know, it takes three to five uses to pay off the investment in an air wall, which is really fast because they last for years. But, you know, I, if I'm going to say I'm better and I cost more, then I better be better. And so durability was huge. We made sure that the outer shell, you know, in the case of this one here, anything that's getting constant air, you could stab it with a knife and it wouldn't matter. I mean, we designed them with big open holes. So they're, they're pumping out air all the time and they still work. Not so with this, right? If this, if this gets a leak, you know, there could be an issue. So the outer shell is very, very durable. Um, it's resistant to snags and punctures and things like that and cuts and all the rest. Um, and then the inner bladders, we actually spent a, a, a lot of time, uh, finding the ideal material 
for those bladders. Um, they had to be lightweight. They had to be inherently fire resistant because these are going into a built environment. They cannot burn. Um, they had to be as puncture and tear and cut resistant as possible while maintaining lightweight and portability, right? I mean, you know, we, there, there's those, all those things are in direct conflict with each other, right? Uh, lightweight usually means flimsy. So we were actually, um, very blessed, I believe, in the discovery of this particular material that, that we've used. And it makes this product extremely resilient. Um, and again, because we recognize that nothing is perfect. I mean, if if you if you open fire on this thing, it would go down. You know, I mean, no question about it. There are things it cannot handle, um, but uh, it's meant to be durable. If something does happen to it, as I mentioned before, if you lose a bladder, first of all, we've had it happen. You know, we, we've, you know, in the early days, we had some bladders with some defects with, with small leaks. And even when they have a small leak, they don't fully fail. And you can actually air them up and continue the job if you need to. We also designed them to be, to be repairable in the field. Uh, I'm going to do this finger thing again. You see that line right there? <laughs> That's an yeah. access zipper. And if you open up that zipper and remove the valve just below it, you can actually remove that air bladder either repair it in the field because we do provide patches just for that um or you can replace it with a with a new bladder depending on how many times you've done it it might take you two minutes it might take you five um the point is it can be done it can restore your containment uh to full rigidity and i say i, I make that point because restore containment uh it never lost it even though it's lost an air bladder it still maintains containment um, which was key because again, if I'm going to claim to be better than plastic, you know, one of the biggest problems with plastic is that it falls down, right? You, you get up in the morning and, you know, or worse, your owners get up in the morning, the people living in that house, and they see this plastic crumpled on the floor, or a big hole, and they're thinking to themselves, okay, all that bad stuff they told me that they're keeping behind that plastic. Where is that now? Right? So if my stuff doesn't do a lot better than that and not fail, then, then I failed. Um, so this was a, a big part of our design. I, I remember the first time that we used uh, one of your air walls in our training. And again, I think, believe it was at one of the experience shows. Um, you you were there and gave us a training on replacing one of the bladders. Mm -hmm. And during our the demonstration we were doing with the class for the hands-on, we actually opened the valve up and let it deflate. And it still held containment. Within oh, nice. The area. You didn't you tell know, me that. Well, you know, it was weird. <laughs> My job is to break things. So, you know, we, that's what we do. We, we we try to find out things that are going to happen. Someone's going to accidentally open a valve or something. It stayed in place. You know, it, it did its job. So, you know, when you mentioned before about replacing plastic, you know, or poly, you know, I, I see the value in that. I, I'm just curious. I'm not holding you to it. Have you done any kind of cost analysis as to how much poly you can actually replace buy one of these over the longevity of the type of system because i know poly is expensive it is expensive you know um the the closest we've gotten to that is is by calculating uh how much tape how much plastic the labor that's involved with not only the initial setup but also the tear down the waste removal and then the repairs that inevitably happen with most plastic containments um and we figured that it was a three to five usage to offset the initial investment in the, in the air wall. That's as close as we've gotten. The numbers you're asking for are, I, I want them so bad myself. Uh, 
And I don't want to, I don't want to, um, I don't want to pull it out of thin air. I want it to be a real number. And okay. it's a, it's a difficult number to quantify. Um, I, I've, I've struggled with that because that's a number I would love. I would love to take a picture, uh, you know, like it just give you a visual of a mountain of plastic, you know, and, and say, this is how much plastic you would use in a year instead of, you know, this, right. That type of thing. So short answer is I don't know what that looks like. Um, I do know that I've seen a lot of containments go up. I've taken, I actually am AMRT certified. So I've actually, and I've been to a lot of AMRT classes. So I've seen a lot of containments just set up just for pure instructional purposes. And when we take all that plastic and we throw it in the dumpster outside the building, it takes up a quarter of the dumpster or more. Yeah. So I've seen it. And that's just one class, you know, so the amount of plastic and tape and everything else, I wish I had a solid number for you. Um, and someday that, the plastic industry that we hope to disrupt may come up with just that number for us because we're going to upset them at some point. Um, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll make it easier then. Uh, longevity on, yeah. on the product. How long do you predict or have data on showing these things lasting in use? Okay. So that's a, that's a, a question that I can only answer by um, extrapolating. <laughs> and I do that. Um, because I'm looking at the materials we've used, not because of the, the product having existed long enough to go through a life cycle. We, we just haven't been around long enough for that to have happened. But that said, uh, I'm going to bring up Cole again, our, our, our builder, our in-house engineer. Um, he is, you know, this is his space. So when he sees a problem, he solves it with, with fabric. Uh, my, my history is more carpentry. So I solve my problems with wood and nails. And it's funny that, you know, we have this different perspective on things, but the point is that at one point he took some of our material and covered an outdoor, uh, sprinkler valve control or something like that in the back on the side of his house. And that was about five years ago. Um, it's outside, it's been exposed. It started life black. It's now a funky kind of a rust color because it's just been bleached by the sun. However, color gone five years of direct exposure, the fabric is completely sound. So that's what this outer shell is made of. So that's the first thing. Uh, the other thing is the air bladders themselves, um, they, the, the manufacturer that we buy the raw materials from won't even take something off the shelf for sale unless it's been there for more than 10 years. Because at that point, it's begun to do they, they have a name for it. It gets a little bit chalky on the surface um, and they, they have a name for it. And I can't remember, recall what they, what they, how they refer to it, but it's, it's got a 10 year shelf life before the manufacturer decides that it's probably not a fresh enough product to sell. Um, I, I, again, I can't get more specific because we haven't been around long enough to say, but the materials that we use, we use the highest quality zippers, the highest quality, everything we can find. We spend the most we can because I know that the users are going to be hard on it. The environments that they exist in are brutal. And my goal is to not build in obsolescence. One of my proudest moments would be if someday I've actually filled the industry and I have nothing left to sell because all my stuff doesn't break anymore. <laughs> you know, and I just don't, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna put myself out of business. That would make me happy, you know? <laughs> it's kind of like the uh, battery industry. You know, they're, they're made to break or run out of energy at a certain point, so you buy more. You're doing the opposite of that. I'm doing the opposite. Yeah. But yep. you know yeah, what? I recently, 
I recently had a, uh, a water loss in my in my house, so I personally was involved with some of the stuff here. But I understand there's something really interesting about yours. I've never been able to experience this, but I had two air scrubbers running at my house for, I think it was 16 days that they were working. Those things are loud. Yes. I, from what I understand, and I remember talking to you about this, these things have a sound blocking quality to them. That's one of the coolest things. And, and I wish, I really wish I could say that that was my plan because it works so well. The well, I wish I would have had them for my 16 days, but. Oh, you totally do. You totally do. Uh, yeah, I, I, for as well as it works and I can't claim it at all, it's annoying, <laughs> but, uh, the fact that it does is phenomenal. Uh, it, it's crazy. We, we discovered it. It's actually funny, a little story there. We, we discovered it in 2021 when we met you and Doug and, and all your team at the experience in, in Vegas in September, we met, we met you guys at that show. And that's where we realized what these things could do. And I'll tell you how we did it. So we, far as we know, and no one's ever contradicted us, we were the first ones to ever run negative air pressure on a, on a, on a convention floor, right? We actually built a chamber out of our stuff and run and ran negative air on the convention, which was very cool. People were very like, nah, you know, so it was one of those moments, right? And we did that by just, eh, I won't say describe the structure because it's too much. But anyway, we built this chamber. People could walk into it and experience being inside of our decon chamber. And it was constructed of these, these Nexus walls. And when you went inside, I don't know if you've ever had your hearing tested, but when you go into that room and they close the door, you go, whoa, it's quiet in here, right? And a convention floor is never quiet. So to walk into this chamber and suddenly you have this intimate conversation space. Um, you know, in fact, I remember walking in with Michelle Blevins uh, from, from CNR and we walked inside and, and she was asking me questions as the, you know, the reporter interviewer person that she is. She, we had this little conversation in there and it was fantastic because we didn't have to yell. We could hear each other perfectly. Uh, it was great, but I really realized it when clients or potential customers would walk in and they would be in that space and I'm going to, I'm going to be honest here. I would try to eavesdrop, you know, I'd like to, you know, see, see what they might be saying, see if they're good, bad, you know, I couldn't hear anything. I couldn't hear a word. I couldn't even hear mumbling. It was nothing. Um, so it started us on a path of exploring what, what could we do with that? And it turns out that a single barrier is good for 15 decibels. And if you know anything about sound and decibel ratings, it's not a linear measurement. 15 decibels is phenomenal. Um, we actually did two, two barriers. In fact, the video is on our website, um, which is www.zeppelinguys.com. Uh, but that video, uh, we did two barriers and it was 25 decibels. And just for a point of reference, it was 50 to 75. 50 decibels is considered quiet. 75 is considered very loud. If you look at any scale and you can look them up on the internet. So it's absolutely shocking how much it does. And I think it's going to change the way restoration is done because people shut down the machines when they're trying to sleep. They do. They don't understand what they're doing. They don't understand that by taking an eight hour shift off of those machines that they're stretching that period that they're suffering by a third or more. Right. I mean, so it's bad news, but if they're not sleeping, they're not sleeping. And I think every restoration contractor out there has experienced it more, more than once where they come in and the machines are either still not running or they've just been turned back on. 
And they know that because the dehues aren't, aren't even operating temperature. They know they just flip them back on, right? Uh, so we think that, you know, that that's going to be a huge benefit. Um, and then, you know, let's take office spaces or, or worship spaces. I mean, no built environment is immune from a water loss. And so you may have a church that needs to run a service and dry the building at the same time. And if you have something that can block that sound and allow the service to continue at the same time the drying is happening, then you've done something, you know, and in an office that needs to be able to operate. Uh, and still deal with the water loss. That's a that's a huge deal. Well, like I said, I had that you know 16 days at my house. I, I would have definitely been an advantage there, sure. but the company wasn't using those. They weren't familiar with it, and it, it, that's another story. So, I'm looking at the image behind you, and I'm looking at valves across the bottom, zippers you talked about, hooks, things like that. How much training is involved in using these things? <laughs> Very little. Um, you could probably attest better to that because you've actually monkeyed around with them and, and you didn't build them. So, you know, th this is that thing. I let my child go and someone else had to, had to figure it out. It's, I had one, um, I had one guy tell me that they're deceptively simple. And what he meant by that was, you know, I show these videos and there's no trickery in my videos. You know, I don't, I don't uh, rehearse these moves. I just do what these things do. So I'm not trying to make it look easier than it is. I'm just performing a function and setting them up, but it looks super easy. Um, and he said, it looks so easy that people are likely to not think they need any instruction or to um, even open the instruction manuals as many men are wont to do, even when it's difficult Ikea furniture, you know, like I can do it, you know, right? So um, training, I think there is some need for training, but not so much because it's hard, but because we've designed so much into it that you know you you can't possibly know what these things are capable of unless i take a moment to explain it to you what are the d rings for well one guy told me that's perfect for training my electrical cords you know i keep my my cords up off the ground i can run them around the perimeter and they're off the ground that's a big deal you know i don't have to tape them down i don't have to deal with all that stuff not a trip hazard great that's what he thought they were um you know i had another guy say i can hang a light from it oh you sure can you know um uh, uh, all these different uses. In fact, and in reality, they weren't designed for that. They were designed so that I could shrink that wall if I needed to, or I could fine tune the height if I'm in a drop ceiling. That's what they're for. Um, but there's all kinds of things they can be used for. But if I didn't tell you you could do that, you wouldn't know. You know, if, if I didn't tell you that that zipper is there, not just so you can load the bladder the first time and then forget about it, but so that it's placed where it is and, the, and configured the way it is so that you could do a field change, right? And change that bladder, a field repair, right? Um, you know, it's really, it's zippers, it's snaps, it's hooks. There's not a lot else going on there. But if I don't teach you these things, um, you'll, you'll be missing a lot of features. You might be able to get the basic function out of it, but you'll lose a lot of the, of the really cool stuff that it's capable of doing. So with that being said, with the configuration behind you, what is that? Two five-foot sections or three? What What is that exactly that's there? That's exactly. This room is about 15, just under 15 feet across. So you're seeing two um, five-foot nexus. And then the dust curtain is also about five feet. Um, and then the, uh, the doffing chamber that you see behind me, it looks bigger because it's in the foreground. Uh, that actually has a, a square footage of just about 12 square feet um uh 14 excuse me 14 square feet because of this 
the state that you live in uh, has this most stringent requirements. They require 12 square feet, enough for two men to stand or two people to stand inside and be able to don and doff properly. Um, so that's a 14 square foot space. So you being trained and very comfortable with this equipment, how long would it take you to set up a configuration like that to block off a 15 foot opening with a decon chamber? What you see behind me uh, takes about 20 minutes, roughly. One person? Be, yeah, one person. Yep, one person. You, you, need, a, you need a little ladder, to uh, a little step ladder to, to connect the, dot, the dust curtain. Um, but yeah, no, one person can set that up. Eh, if you're brand new to it, it'll take you 30. Um, but yeah, 25. I've done it so many times, I'm down to about 20 minutes. And that's no damage to any of the walls, ceilings, floors. It's just held in place. And it doesn't move under positive or negative pressure, you said, right? That's right. Yeah, no, the, the surfaces, in fact, what you're seeing behind us has actually changed somewhat, very small stuff. Basically, what we have now is that we have all the edges are, are black. Um, and it kind of clearly defines the edges, but it also, uh, it's filled with this uh, very soft, you know, your couch pillows, that's called polyfill or Dacron. Uh, we fill those things up with that. So it's very, very soft. So when it touches the building, it's like putting a pillow against the wall, which means that it can adapt to irregularities in the surface, which is important, but also not put anything rigid or hard on the wall um, or the ceiling so that we are preventing any damage. In fact, you'll notice in this room, there's, um, there's crown molding, right? You see that up in the corners. Well, the edge seals, which are on the edges of these walls, they're the black things that you can barely see there. Um, those are actually longer than they need to be. So you can actually pull out a little bit out of the top and protect you know, things like crown molding and things like that. And then you asked about the negative pressure and can it hold? I, I just wanna tell you one little story short. Um, we did a, a comparison. We were invited to a flood house um, actually, um, uh, Jeff Cuthbertson in um, Chattanooga, Tennessee, invited us to his flood house, very generously opened it up to us and said, whatever people or equipment you need, let us know. It was fantastic. We were there for about four days. Um, you and, and Doug actually got on the call with us while we were there and were advising us on some of our uh, containment techniques so we could show uh, how to build containment for people with high sensitivity to mold. Um, because what we did was we built a two by four compression to two by four uh, containment, right? As well as a steel stud version as well. Um, but this, this two by four version, we put it under negative pressure just to make sure it was working. And of course it was. And then we had this fun idea. If anybody's familiar with the movie Myth or the show Mythbusters, where they, they just ramp things up until things just break. We like to break things too, Lance, not just you. <laughs> so we all had the idea, let's break it. Let's see how much negative pressure it takes to break it. And keep in mind, this what we built was the gold standard of containment. I mean, I, I don't know how many times a year someone builds compression timber containment. It isn't often. You know, it's going to be in schools and hospitals mainly, and everything else is going to be zip pulls if you're lucky. So this was good containment. And it failed at negative 41 pascal. That's when it failed. And, and, and when I mean failed, I'm talking, we had nine foot two by fours about to fall on us. So it was coming down and it was coming down fast. So um, it was a big failure. We put mine up and we said, well, you know, we got to do the same thing. And so we ran up the negative pressure and it basically maxed out our 500 CFM uh, NAM. Couldn't do it. So we had to call up another piece of equipment from the warehouse 
got another 500 CFM unit up there and turned it on. And only then did we get failure. And only the failure was only that the doffing chamber that you see behind me started to get sucked into the chamber. The walls themselves weren't falling. It was just that the doffing chamber was too light <laughs> and it, it and its internal frame were being sucked inside. The number was 57. So from 41, using the absolute gold standard of containment to 57. So when everybody kind of tries to figure out how it's possible without tape and without the things they're used to, how is it possible to create such high quality containment? Well, it works. You know, it works the same reason your car can drive on the road, air pressure and friction. You know, it's just a lot of it. So if our listeners want to get in touch with you for more information, how do they do it? Lots of ways. You can call me, uh, 408-247-9255 or area code 408-AIRWALL. Um, you can get us on the website, which is www.zeppelinguys.com. That's Z-E-P-P-E-L-I-N-G-U-Y-S.com. Uh, and you can email me directly, Keith at zeppelinguys.com. Um, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. You, I will make it easy. <laughs> okay. Well, I thank you for taking the time to be here with us today. I mean, I think it's a cool product. Uh, we've used it. We're going to be using it at the upcoming experience show. Again, we actually use that as part of our uh, a booth that we have there um, yeah. as part of the display system. So it's kind of interesting the things that you can do with this, thinking outside the box. You know, right. so really, really good stuff. Again, thank you for being here, and I look forward to seeing you at the next uh, trade show. Thanks, Lance. It's been great. I really appreciate your time. Take care. Thanks. You too.